Chapter Five of Christmas Tide by William Sands. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Chapter Five. Tianji's Twelfth Night at Sea. Although in the short reign of Edward the Sixth, the splendor of the royal Christmases was in general somewhat reduced yet in fifteen fifty one and fifty two there was one of the most magnificent revellings on record for the youthful king being much grieved at the condemnation of the duke of somerset it was thought expedient to divert his mind by additional pastimes at the following christmas george ferrer of lincoln's inn being a gentleman of some rank, was appointed Lord of Misrule, or Master of the King's Pastimes, and acquitted himself so well as to afford great delight to many, and some to the King, but not in proportion to his heaviness. George Ferrer seems to have been well adapted for his responsible office, not only being a gentleman, but a person of decision and determined to carry it through with due spirit and display and to see that his officers as well as himself were well attended to he complained to the master of the revels sir thomas cowarden that the apparel provided for his counsellors was not sufficient or fit for the purpose and no doubt had the defect remedied as from the account of the expenses the dresses were handsome and his own in particular may be called superb he also stated that he should require john smith as his disard or clown besides jugglers tumblers and fools etc and a new fool's coat with a hood was made for smith but he had already not being fit for the purpose the dress of this clown who was probably a well-known court fool from his being applied for by name will show that no expense was spared even about the officers of this gallant lord of misrule he had a long fool's coat of yellow cloth of gold all over fringed with white red and green velvet containing seven and a half yards at two pounds per yard guarded with plain yellow cloth of gold four yards at thirty-three shillings four pence per yard with a hood and a pair of buskins of the same figured gold containing two and a half yards at five pounds and a girdle of yellow sarcenet containing one quarter sixteen pence the whole value being twenty six pounds fourteen shillings eight pence a goodly sum for the dress of a jester at the risk of being tedious the various dresses of the lord of misrule himself must be mentioned to give some notion of the style in which this celebrated revelling was got up on christmas day and during that week he wore a robe of white bodikin a rich stuff made of silk interwoven with golden thread containing nine yards at sixteen shillings a yard guarded with embroidered cloth of gold wrought in knots fourteen yards at eleven shillings four pence a yard having a fur of red feathers with a cape of camlet thrum 
a coat of flat silver fine with works five yards at fifty shillings with an embroidered guard of leaves of gold and silk colored containing fifteen yards at twenty shillings a cap of maintenance of red feathers and camlet thrum very rich with a plume of feathers a pair of hose the breeches made of a guard of cloth of gold embroidered in panes nine yards of guarding at thirteen shilling fourpence lined with silver sarcenet one l at eight shillings a pair of buskins of white bodikin one yard at sixteen shillings besides making and other changes eight shillings more a pair of pantacles of bruges satin three shillings four pence a girdle of yellow sarcenet containing a quarter of a yard sixteen shillings the whole cost being fifty two pounds eight shillings eight pence independent of the cap of maintenance for the remaining dresses it is unnecessary to state the quantities and particular prices he had for new year's day and that week a robe of red bodikin with an embroidered guard of purple silver a coat of the same materials embroidered and guarded in like manner a pair of hose slopwise the breeches of cloth of gold figured with red and green velvet with a cut guard of cloth of gold on it and a pair of buskins of red bodikin the cost being thirty four pounds fifteen shillings a hunter's coat of cloth of gold figured with red and green velvet churchwork guarded with a border of cloth of gold embroidered lined with under sleeves of white bodikin a hat of plain cloth of gold garnished with leaves of green satin the cost nineteen pounds fourteen shillings four pence for twelfth day and his progress in london he wore a robe of wrought purple furred velvet the inside white and black like powdered ermine with a coat a headpiece and a scapular of the same the garment welted above with blue and yellow gold tinsel the hat garnished with purple velvet striped with threads of silver and an l of white and blue taffeta for laces for the same a pair of hose the breeches of purple cloth of silver welted with purple tinsel and gold a pair of buskins striped purple velvet with threads of silver thirty three pounds twelve shillings the above sums being exclusive of workmanship and other necessary materials these dresses which were supplied from the king's stores must have satisfied the cravings of the most finished exquisite and taking into account that he was attended by the following attendants of his court besides venus who formed part of the pageant and that they were all handsomely or appropriately dressed it was enough to turn any moderate man's head his suite was composed of his heir apparent who was john smith before mentioned three other sons and two natural sons the sons being represented in handsome fool's dresses counsellors pages of honour gentlemen ushers sergeant-at-arms a provost-marshal under-marshal lieutenant of ordnance heralds for himself others for venus a trumpeter for himself and another for venus an orator interpreter a jailer footman 
a messenger, an Irishman, an Irishwoman, six hunters, jugglers, a fool for his lordship, and one for Venus. On the 4th of January, he went by water from Greenwich to London, and landed at the Tower Wharf, attended by a number of young knights and gentlemen, with trumpets, bagpipes, and flutes, and a morris dance with a tabret. One strange part of the procession also was a cart, with the pillory, gibbet, and stocks. He then rode through Tower Street, where he was received by Sergeant Wawee, the Lord of Misrule, to John Maynard, one of the sheriffs of London, who conducted him to the house of Sir George Barn, the Lord Mayor, where there was a banquet, and, at his departure, the Lord Mayor gave him a standing cup, with a cover of silver gilt, of the value of ten pounds, for a reward. He also set a hogshead of wine, and a barrel of beer at his gate, for the train that followed him. The motto taken by Ferrers was, Semper Ferians, always keeping holiday, and his crest was the home-bush, or evergreen holly. He had himself to incur considerable expenses, independent of the assistance he received from the king's stores. But the honor qualified this, and, of course, men of family and property were selected for the onerous office. In the following year the revels were kept nearly in the same manner, and, on this occasion, the king's lord of misrule was graciously pleased to knight the sheriff's lord of misrule, and they had a great banquet at my lord treasurer's. Towards the end of the short reign of Edward, it was enacted that the eves of Christmas Day, the circumcision, and the epiphany should be kept as fasts. But this was repealed very early in the reign of Mary, who, about the same time, issued a proclamation to prevent books, ballads, and interludes from touching on points of doctrine and religion, and which, in effect, stopped all interludes and dramas without special license. Her short reign was not very congenial to Christmas festivities. Her own melancholy temperament and domestic disappointments, interfering with them at court, but they were still kept up throughout the country, although much checked by the persecutions on account of religion. And what more fierce and rancorous than the persecution of man by his fellow man, of Christian by his so-called fellow Christian, in the name of the all-merciful God, slaying and torturing by fire and sword, for difference in the worship of that being, who abounds in pity and compassion for the erring sinner. Proud, cold, vindictive man! It will be an awful question to answer hereafter. What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. The Christmas masks were not, however, abandoned, and in the first Christmas after the marriage of Philip and Mary, there was one where the characters seemed somewhat incongruous with the disposition of Mary, as there were six Venuses, or amorous ladies, with six Cupids and male and female Turks, etc., among the numerous miscellaneous New Year's gifts presented to Mary in 1556 were the forepart of a kirtle and a pair of sleeves, of cloth of silver, richly embroidered all over with Venice silver, and raised with silver and black silk, given by the Princess Elizabeth, a table painted of the Queen's marriage, by Suet, painter, a smock, wrought all over with silk, 
and collar and ruffs of damask gold pearl and silver by the duchess of somerset six sugar loaves six tap nets of figs four barrels of suckets and orange water etc by lady york who apparently had a sweet tooth two fat oxen by mr michael wentworth in the present time we should have taken them for granted as prize oxen two guinea cocks scalded by ghent a march pane and two dishes of jelly by burrage master cook a fat goose and a capon by mrs preston a cake of spice bread by kelly plasterer nutmegs and ginger and a long stalk of cinnamon elect in a box by smallwode grocer a basket of pomegranates cherries apples oranges and lemons by harris fruiterer three rolls of songs by shepherd of the chapel a fair lute edged with passamain of gold and silk by brown instrument maker the lord mayor kept his state as usual and in the end of january fifteen fifty seven the lord treasurer's lord of misrule for this officer's power was frequently extended to candlemas day came to the lord mayor with his suite and invited him to dinner in the following year there is a notice of the lord of misrule which would be rather strange if we did not know that going to the paltry compter in those days was not always a mark of disgrace or difficulty as in recent times but after all allowance made some part of the account is suspicious however as we have not got the name of the master reveller we may give the story that on new year's eve a lord of misrule with his herald trumpets and drums and several attendants disguised in white went to london and was brought to the poultry compter and divers of his men lay all night there and they went astray home again by four and six together to westminster on horseback and on foot it is to be hoped that those who came disguised in white did not go home disguised in liquor but let us give them the benefits of the doubt queen elizabeth who to powerful intellect joined much of the arbitrary temper of her father possessed also great vanity and fondness of display in her time therefore the festivities were renewed with great pomp and show and theatrical entertainments were also particularly encouraged and were frequently performed before the queen especially at christmas time to restrain somewhat the great expenses of these entertainments she directed in her second year estimates to be made of them previously but this wholesome practice judging from the cost of after years did not exist very long in fifteen fifty nine which may be called her first christmas the play before her on christmas night unluckily contained some offensive or indecent matter as the players were commanded to leave off and the mask came in dancing on the twelfth night following there was a play and then a goodly mask and afterwards a great banquet in fifteen sixty one a lord of misrule having with him a train of one hundred horsemen richly apparelled rode through london to the inner temple where there was great revelling throughout the christmas lord robert dudley afterwards earl of leicester being the constable and marshal under the name of palafilos and christopher hatton afterwards chancellor was master of the game a sort of parliament had been previously held on st thomas's eve to decide whether the society should keep christmas 
and if so, the oldest bencher delivered a speech on the occasion. The oldest butler was to publish the officers' names, and then, in a token of joy and good liking, the bench and company passed beneath the hearth and sing a carol, and so to Boyer. It was at this Temple Grand Christmas that Ferrix and Porrix, which may be considered as the first play, assuming the character of the regular tragedy, was performed. The revels at these grand Christmases generally contained throughout the whole twelve days, Christmas Day, New Year's Day, and Twelfth Day, being more particularly distinguished. On this occasion, at the breakfast of Twelfth Day, were brawn, mustard, and malmsey, the dinner of two courses to be served in the hall, and after the first course came the master of the game, apparelled in green velvet, and the ranger of the forest in green satin, bearing a green bow with arrows, each of them having a hunting horn about his neck, after blowing three blasts of venery. They paced three times round the fire, which was then placed in the middle of the hall. The master of the game next made three courtesies and knelt down, and petitioned to be admitted into the service of the lord of the feast. This ceremony, having been performed, a huntsman came into the hall with a fox, and a net with a cat, both bound at the end of a staff, and nine or ten couple of hounds, the horns blowing. The fox and cat were then set upon by the hounds, and killed beneath the fire. A pleasant Christmas amusement. This sport being finished, the marshal ushered all in their proper places, and after the second course, the oldest of the masters of the revels sang a song, with the assistance of others present, after some repose and further revels, supper of two courses was served, and when that was finished, the marshal was borne in by four men, on a sort of scaffold or framework, and taken three times round the hearth, crying out, A lord, a lord, etc., after which he came down and went to dance. The lord of misrule then addressed himself to the banquet. The unfortunate fox and cat ought to have formed part, which ended with minstrelsy, mirth and dancing, when they all departed to rest. In 1573 there was some urgent expedition necessary in getting the revels ready in time, for a set of unfortunate plasterers were kept at work all night, as they could not be spared or trusted to go abroad to supper they were allowed bread and cheese and beer for that meal the queen generally had masks of different kinds before her at christmas time of greater or less magnificence but mention must not be omitted of the celebrated christmas at gray's inn in 1594 of which an account was published under the title of gesta grayorum mr henry holmes the christmas prince took for his style the high and mighty Prince Henry, Prince of Purpool, Archduke of Stapulia and Bernardia, Duke of High and Nether Halborn, Marquis of St. Giles and Tottenham, Count Palatine of Bloomsbury and Clerkenwell, Great Lord of the Cantons of Islington, Kentish Town, Paddington and Knightsbridge, Knight of the Most Heroical Order of the Helmet, and Sovereign of the Same. According to our views, the entertainments would be considered heavy and pedantic in their nature, but they were in the style of the age, and seemed to have given much satisfaction. There was a cessation of sports from Twelfth Night till the 1st of February, the prince being supposed absent in Russia on public affairs. On that day he was received at Blackwall, 
as if on his return, and that and the following day were spent in reveling and feasting, which then ceased until Shrovetide, when a mask was performed before the queen, containing as usual some gross flattery, and she was so much pleased with the performance, that on the courtiers dancing a measure after it she exclaimed, What? Shall we have bread and cheese after a banquet? She was particularly partial to theatrical performances, and throughout her reign frequent mention is made of the plays performed during Christmas, at court, and the rewards given to the players. The children of St. Paul's also, and the scholars on her new foundation in Westminster, often performed before her at this season. In 1560 and several following years, Sebastian Westcott, master of the children of St. Paul's, received six pounds, thirteen shillings, four pence, for their services, which seems to have been the usual price paid to regular players for a play, until the end of her reign, when it was increased to ten pounds. Richard Ferrant, the master of the children of Windsor, received for their services, in 1574, as much as thirteen pounds, six shillings, eight pence. In 1560, Sir Thomas Benger was made master of the revels, succeeding Sir Thomas Cowarden, he dying in 1577. Mr. Thomas Blagrave, who had acted since 1573, held the office for a short time, but Mr. Edmund Tilney was appointed in 1579 and died in 1610. The play performed on Twelfth Night, 1571, was called Narcissus, in which a live fox was let loose and chased by dogs so that the introduction of live animals on the stage is not a modern invention. On New Year's Day, 1574, the children of Westminster performed truth, faithfulness, and mercy. The scholars on the foundation at Westminster, known as the Queen Scholars, have continued the custom of acting plays to the present time, the performances having, for very many years past, been one of Terence's plays, of which four are taken in rotation, and excellent acting is in general exhibited to a select and talented audience. The concluding ceremony of the cap, however, reminds one of the usual termination of the country Christmas play of St. George. In the beginning of this reign there are references to the custom, then called an old one, of scholars being allowed, even by their foundation deed, to bar out their masters a week before Christmas and Easter. At Christmas 1574, she had a company of Italian players, amongst others. One of them was a tumbler. On New Year's night, 1582, there were also sundry feats of tumbling by the servants of Lord Strange, besides plays during the Christmas and a mask of ladies. In several following years a tumbler, called Simons, seems to have been famed for diverse feats of activity, and the Queen apparently took pleasure in such exhibitions. In 1600, a person called Nike tumbled before her, and fourteen shillings are charged for his silk hose. In her latter years we find Edward Allen, John Hemming, and Thomas Pope presenting plays before her. The rewards given to the players vary from sixteen pounds, thirteen shillings, four pence, to forty pounds. As the Merry Wives of Windsor, written at the Queen's request, other of Shakespeare's plays were performed at court, we may fairly presume that some of them were performed at Christmas, and that the great bard himself may have acted before her. 
In 1592, the vice-chancellor and heads of colleges at Cambridge were directed to act a comedy before the Queen at Christmas. But these unfortunate victims of too much learning were obliged to memorialize the vice-chamberlain, stating their inability to act in English, and asking leave to perform in Latin. They must have been in their glory in the reign of Elizabeth's successor, the pedant James, whom, on one occasion, they addressed as Jacobissimi Jacob. Like her predecessors, the queen would play at dice at Christmas time, but she had dice set for her that threw the high numbers only, as fives and sixes, and, as she knew not the trick, she was kept in good humor by her success, as she, of course, won, and her courtiers probably thought it was worth some sacrifice to avoid incurring the effects of the paternal temper existing in her. Kemp, in his celebrated Morris dance, from London to Norwich, takes particular notice of the Norwich waits, saying that few cities have the like, and none better, who, besides their excellency in wind instruments, their rare cunning on the viol and violin, had admirable voices, every one of them being able to serve as a chorister in any cathedral church. One Richard Reed, a wait of Cambridge, is particularly mentioned as having twenty shillings for his attendance at a gentleman's mansion, during the Christmas of 1574. Besides these, Puttenham speaks of tavern minstrels, that gave a fit of mirth for a groat, much in the style of our present peripatetic street musicians, their matter being for the most part stories of old time, as the tale of Sir Topas, the exploits of Beavis of Southampton, Guy of Warwick, Adam Bell, and Clime of the Clough, and such other old romances or historical rhymes, made purposely for recreation of the common people at Christmas dinners, in bridales and in taverns and alehouses, and such other places of base resort. The nobility, as in former times, imitated the court in the manner of keeping Christmas, and the gentry followed in their steps, but they were allured to town by the superior festivities in the metropolis, to the neglect of their friends and dependence on the country, besides dissipating their means in London, and thus causing an inability to preserve proper hospitality and charity in their own neighborhood. In order to check this practice, an order was made in 1589, directing the gentlemen of Norfolk and Suffolk to leave London before Christmas, and repair to their own countries, there to keep hospitality among their neighbors. Their presence also would not only enable them to increase the real enjoyment of their dependence, but would serve to control any tendency to riot or debauch at the country alehouses. At this time the resort of many idle strollers, under the guise of minstrels, jugglers, revelers, etc., and would, if right-minded themselves, give a proper direction to the festivities. At Christmas be merry, and thank God of all, and feast thy poor neighbors, the great with the small. In 1581 there was a book written by Thomas Lovell, published by John Aldee, against the use and abuse of dancings in minstrelsy. It is of a puritanical nature, being a supposed dialogue between custom, who defends them, and verity, who attacks them, is made victorious. Custom, however, pleads hard for dancing at Christmas time, showing that it had been a usage of long standing. Christmas is a merry time, good mirth therefore to make, 
young men and maids together may their legs in dances shake we see it with some gentlemen a common use to be at that time to provide to have some pleasant minstrelsy towards the end of the queen's life when she herself failed in health and spirit there was in general a great abatement in christmas festivities the country taking the tone from the monarch in summer's last will and testament written about this time autumn talks of christmas as a pinchback cut-throat churl that keeps no open house as he could do delighteth in no game or fellowship loves no good deeds and hateth talk but sitteth in a corner turning crabs or coughing o'er a warm pot of ale and in father hubbard's tales by middleton the ant's tale referring probably to the time about the end of this reign and showing the nature of the amusements in vogue at christmas the writer says do but imagine now what a sad christmas we all kept in the country without either carols wassail bowls dancing of cylinders round in moonshine about maypoles shooing the mare hoodman blind hot cockles or any of our old christmas gambols no not so much as choosing king and queen on twelfth night with elizabeth's fondness for luxury and dress and her passion for adulation it may well be imagined that her new year's gifts were rigidly expected or exacted from all classes connected with her from matthew parker archbishop of canterbury down to smith the dustman and they were of a most miscellaneous description in the preceding reigns when she was princess she was in the habit of giving and receiving them but in a comparatively quiet in an obtrusive manner frequently consisting of presents of gilt plate and the messengers with gifts to her always receiving rewards but on one occasion she gave her brother king edward a translation in latin in her own hand of an italian sermon of ochini her pride of scholarship even then showing itself there are many instances of authors giving compositions of their own as new year's gifts and of books being printed with that name no doubt by way of attracting at this season on new year's day fifteen sixty one noel dean of st paul's who preached before the queen on that day got much blamed by her for having laid on her cushion as a new year's gift a prayer-book richly bound having several fine cuts and pictures of the stories of saints and martyrs for she considered these as being contrary to the proclamation against images pictures and romish relics and churches and desired such mistake might never occur again one can fancy the venerable dean shrinking under the stern rebuke of the peremptory young lady on a point of ecclesiastical discipline in return for the gifts presented to her she generally gave articles of gilt plate as cups bowls salts etc varying according to the rank of the person from four hundred ounces to sir christopher hatton to two ounces to mrs thomason the dwarf and also presents of money to the servants it would be useless to insert a long list of these gifts if you will show the variety the value and taste of some and the strangeness according to our ideas of others in fifteen sixty she had a pair of silk stockings given her by mrs montague her silk woman which by some are said to have been the first pair worn in england however they became common soon afterwards it may be mentioned as an act of kindness that in this year she gave sixty french crowns as a new year's gift 
to Penny, widow, who had been formerly nurse to King Edward. In the following year she received presents and money from forty pounds by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and a red silk purse and demi-sovereigns, to four pounds by Lady Cheek, and a russet silk purse, also various articles of dress, most of them richly wrought, among which were smocks worked in silk, and standing collars and partlets wrought with gold, silver, and silk, and miscellaneous articles, from handsome pieces of jewellery down to one pie of quinces, by John Betts, servant of the pastry, who received two gilt spoons in return. In subsequent years the gifts are much of the same nature, and a few only need be particularized. Some may be considered as partaking of a professional character. Her doctors generally giving a pot of orange blossoms and a pot of ginger, or something similar and her apothecary a box of lozenges, or a pot of conserves, while her cook gave a marchpane, made into some kind of device, and her sergeant of the pastry, a quince pie, and sometimes a pie of quinces in Warden's gilt. In 1574 the favourite, Earl of Leicester, gave her a splendid fan, the ladies now might envy, being of white feathers, set in a handle of gold, one side of it garnished with two very fair emeralds, one of them especially fine, and garnished with diamonds and rubies, and the other side garnished with diamonds and rubies, and on each side a white bear and two pearls hanging, a lion rampant with a white muzzled bear at its foot. Handsomely wrought smocks are frequently mentioned. This article, as is well known, was different from that in present wear. The ornamental part could be safely exhibited, and gentlemen could present them without breach of decorum, though in our present fastidious days, a New Year's gift to a lady of a chemisette, birth or gillette, might be considered as a somewhat eccentric gage d'amour. 1578. Philip Sidney gave a cambric smock, which may be considered as quite in the florid or decorated style of workmanship, the sleeves and collar being wrought with black work edged with a small bone lace of gold and silver, and a suite of ruffs cutwork flourished with gold and silver, and set with spangles. In the same year, Sir Gawain Carew gave one worked with Venice gold, and edged with a small bone lace of Venice gold. Smith, the dustman, gave two bolts of cambric, her doctors and apothecary, pots of ginger and candy, and Mark Anthony, a viol. In the following year, Morris Watkins, whoever he might be, gave eighteen larks in a cage, and received twenty shillings in reward. In several years there were handsome gowns, petticoats, kirtles, doublets, and mantles, some embroidered with precious stones, bracelets, and other ornaments, so that it does not appear so very surprising that at her death Elizabeth left a hoard of two thousand dresses behind her. It must be presumed, however, that she was not in the habit of giving away any of her apparel, or her ladies' maids would have had rich perquisites. In 1582, Lady Howard gave her a jewel of gold, representing a cat and mice playing with her, garnished with small diamonds and pearls, typifying perhaps the queen and her maids, and she received from eight maskers a flower of gold, garnished with sparks of diamonds, rubies, and opals, with an agate of Her Majesty's Fisnummy, and a pearl pendant with devices painted in it. In 1589, 
she had a jewel of gold like an alpha and omega whatever that might be garnished with sparks of diamonds sir francis drake also gave her a fan of white and red feathers a handle of gold enameled with a half-moon of mother-of-pearl within that a half-moon garnished with sparks of diamonds and a few seed-pearls on one side having her majesty's picture within it and on the other side a device with a crow over it lord north in his household book charges forty pounds as his new year's gift to the queen and sixteen pounds ten shillings given at court at new year's tide it need scarcely be observed that the custom of new year's gifts was prevalent among all classes and many examples might be given of payments on account of them in the domestic records of the age the customs in france about this time were very similar to ours in sully's memoirs sixteen o six it is stated les ceremonies du jour de l'an d'or à jour souvent se passeront à les customs et en prison feston banquette balle basquerade course de bague et autre rechonson et magnificence le roi la reine marguerite vous a en en vous vous à madame vostra femme aussi end of chapter five recording by greg giordano newport ritchie florida